My name is Steve Becker. I was a district court judge in Reno County, Kansas for 26 years. Following my retirement from the bench, I served in the Kansas legislature. I'm Beth White. I'm a podcast aficionado and proud to be here today. And this is Cleared. <laughs> Beth, you're starting out with big words. Uh, I do what I can. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? Yep, doing well. Doing well. We're back in the studio. It's time for another episode of Cleared. And uh, the case we're going to profile in this episode is high profile. Yes. So, if there are other true crime aficionados among our listeners, they probably have come across this case. Yes. Well, let's back up. Back up? Let's We're back just up. beginning. Let's back up to how we got on this case. Because I, I think almost every single podcast I talk about how this isn't a coincidence, and... It's probably been a month or so ago. I was cleaning my house. So when I clean my house, I turn on a podcast. I've gotten my husband deep into podcasts. So, and we share an Apple account. So our podcasts are always mixed in together. And a Dateline, a Dateline special pops up. So I just turn it on and listen to it, not knowing anything about it. Six episodes later, it turns out to be exoneration story. That's interesting, mm. I think. It cites how maybe not so rare this is. So Raymond Lee Jennings, who we're going to be covering today, that's how I came across his story. How my dad got into it is just within the past, has it been a month yet? I think close to a month ago. We went on a family vacation. It was me, my mom, and my dad. It's the first time I've been without kids in 10 years. <laughs> so it, it was pretty wild. I read my book, The Entire Car Ride. <laughs> We went to bed at nine. I mean, we were just living our best lives. And in part of that process, in the many hours that we were in the car, because we ended up going to four or five national parks, yeah. Yellowstone, we, yeah. Glacier. We, a one-way trip was over a thousand miles. Yeah. So I um, forced them, encouraged them. I like, I encouraged them to listen to the podcast as well. And one quick note on our travel, we went to Yellowstone um, and it's been a while since I've gone anywhere like that. And there's just signs everywhere. Don't pet the buffaloes. 
<laughs> Which I'm thinking, okay, you know, whatever, whatever. Which I shouldn't make too light of it because somebody... That's a popular topic on Facebook yeah. as well. Is it? Well, and then you go into their souvenir stores and like there's just shirts and mugs everywhere. Don't touch the buffaloes. And from my experience, having gone there, I could have totally <laughs> touched a buffalo. I could have pet a buffalo. We we entered Yellowstone at the north entrance because we first went to uh, Glacier. Glacier. We went to Glacier National Park first, and then we came south and we took the north entrance into Yellowstone. And that's where it was most evident. There were, because they had a lot of administrative buildings and a museum. There were about, you know, four or five larger brick buildings at that entrance. It looked like a little city. Yeah. Like a small city. Yeah, they had a hotel there. They had a post office. I think there was dorms for the park rangers. And there there were buffalo. On the sidewalk. Lying on the sidewalk in front, just lying right in front of the front doors of some of those buildings. Like you had to be careful when you got out of the car because a buffalo could have been laying <laughs> right next to your car. And you're telling me I can't I can't pet that fluffy little There was creature. a buffalo lying in a parking space and you could park right beside it. I am 37 years old and I think that's the sternest you and mom have talked to me trying to convince me that I in fact cannot go pet the buffalo. So... That's my big takeaway from that trip. And that, and it entered or led us to looking into this case a little bit more. And what was, you talk about these. Lack of coincidence. Air, yeah, air quote coincidences. And what was the name of the podcast? The Girl in the Blue Mustang. And what is your stepson drive? A blue Mustang. There you go. What did I drive a red Mustang? (laughs) Yeah, but this is about a. This story is about a blue, blue Mustang. Mustang. Yeah. Actually, no, it would have been older Mustang. Okay, so you'll understand, for the listeners, you'll understand how really high profile this case became um, as Beth tells the story. Should we get into it? Let's go. Okay. So the story, and I'm going to tell this one a little bit differently um, because the bulk of the injustice comes in the beginning before Raymond's actually um, arrested. So we're going to spend quite a bunch of our time talking about that. The actual crime occurred um, was Michelle O'Keefe. She was an 18-year-old college student. Um, by all, She lived in California. By all accounts, just a remarkable woman. I think she's, her parents said that in seventh grade, she was taking college math classes I mean, just brilliant. At 18, she was getting ready to graduate high school with associate's degree, so she had a lot going for her. Um, She was also gorgeous and just happened to live near the L.A. area and on occasion would get called in for extra roles. And on this particular day, she was offered a position to be an extra on a Kid Rock music video. So her and her friend, um, who was also given the same opportunity, they parked at a park-and-ride um, for thus us living in Hutchinson, Kansas, maybe not too familiar, familiar with park and rides, areas where you can park and ride with other people, park and ride on public transportation, just an effort to conserve, really. And the area we're talking about is L.A. 
And the suburbia that surrounds Yeah, she's the park and ride was in Palmdale, California. So they go, they go to the music video, she comes home, and the next thing that happens is it's called in that she was murdered. She was shot several times in the park and ride parking lot. And the person who, oh, go ahead. I thought you said she comes home. She comes home to her car at the park and ride. Excuse me. Yes. She gets back to her car separates from her best friend her best friend gets in her car and leaves and she's getting ready to get in her car and drive home which is a blue mustang which is a blue mustang it actually was her um high school graduation gift she had just gotten it not too long before that so unfortunately so she's shot there in the park and ride the first person to call it in and the first person to find her happens to be a security guard that works at this park and ride and his name is raymond lee jennings he calls it in. He calls shots fired to his supervisor at this security firm, and that's when law enforcement show up. Um, law enforcement realize pretty quickly that this is going to escalate the situation. It's not just a typical police officer's take a report, obviously, because this poor young woman's deceased. And so detectives get involved. Uh, Raymond stays there waiting to be interviewed by detectives. I think for hours waiting to talk to detectives. He doesn't leave. He stays right by the scene. And they do question him, and they question him quite a bit. And they're asking him questions like, did you see a shooter? He said, no. Well, what do you think happened? And here's Raymond's problem. He just starts talking and doesn't stop talking. He gives them all kind of information on what he think could have happened, how it would have happened, what order the shots were fired in. He talks about um, when he first arrived to the scene because he heard the car alarm going off, which he recognized as being a Mustang alarm. And he gets there and he sees that Michelle's um, tube top had been pulled down. So he tells the detectives, like, I thought it was some sort of sexual assault gone bad. By the way she was dressed, I thought that she would have been a prostitute. Like he's telling this, these things to the detectives and they're thinking this is kind of insensitive of him saying of this young 18-year-old girl that's just been murdered. He's not showing a lot of emotion, just giving very informative facts. So that immediately strikes the detectives as odd and they note that. And I understand, too, that during this initial phase, um, and I think they were there till mid-morning of the next day. So, uh, yeah, they were there a long time at the scene. Uh, But I think Jennings, all this information, um, this presentation by Raymond Jennings, he's using a lot of cop lingo. Yes. Law enforcement terms and and things like that, yeah. which is kind of I don't know, odd. Yeah, it strikes some sort of something with the detectives and they they really take note of that. And over the next several days and even months, they continue to pull him in and question him. Now, Jennings was new to this position. This was his second day of work. Um so he was fresh out of training. And he was doing everything by the book because he had just received the training. So a couple days go by and he decides, you know what, this is too painful. I can't do this. This I, I can't do this. So he quits his security job and he returns his uniform to the security office. The detectives become aware of this and they go and confiscate the uniform um, as evidence because at this point they think he did it. He just, according to them, and a lot of this information I'm getting, I should say, comes from the podcast 
um, the girl in the blue Mustang. And it actually was a separate Dateline series too. Um, they thought he just knew too much. There's too much information that he had for him not to be the shooter. So they go and collect his uniform. Thankfully, it was not laundered or washed, so it's still dirty. So they're thinking they're going to find all sorts of gunshot residue and all sorts of evidence on this. Blood splatter. Yes. So they take it into custody, they search it, and they find nothing. Absolutely nothing on the uniform. So, again, that's kind of bolsters um, Raymond's testimony that he wasn't there. This is, you know what I mean? It kind of proves his point. So months start to pass by. They don't have anybody else in mind except for Raymond. And the detectives, at least from the podcast, it talks about how they repeatedly called him in for questioning. And we're not talking like just a casual question or two. We're talking hours of questioning that he's... Interrogation. Yeah, that he's willingly participating in. And they even said his demeanor was very pleasant. It was. It appeared as though he wanted, they, he wanted to help them, is what they said. Um. He did this and with, that was true. Yes. And he did this without an attorney, which sitting in front of a detective for hours and hours, for months and months as this goes by, you think at some point he would think he needed an attorney, but he didn't. Eventually, they tried this new technique, some sort of cognitive recall, where they wanted him to use this technique to try and picture the crime scene differently in order of hopefully giving some sort of new information that was locked in his brain. So he tried that, and then they asked him to do a polygraph, and he agreed. Uh, the polygraph was administered, and they told him he failed. I didn't find a whole lot of information on the polygraph after that. Have you? Did you see anything? No. Because it even came into question of whether or not it was a legitimate polygraph, or whether they, he was just told he failed as uh, an interrogation tactic. But nonetheless, he maintained his innocence, and they let him go because... They had no evidence. The only thing they had, the inkling that they had towards him, was that he knew too much, air quotes. Throughout the case. I mean, I, I don't mean to jump ahead, but there was no physical evidence tying Raymond Jennings to Correct. the crime. Correct. The detective, the lead detective in the case, said the thing that really stuck with him is that Raymond was able to tell them the order in which the shots were fired the night of the crime. Like she was shot in her head first and then her chest, like that sort of thing. Gave them the order of the number of shots and how they entered her body. And according to the detective, it took the state's top crime scene technician months to be able to figure out what order they were shot in. So that was what really they were hanging their hat on, that if he knew the shots and he knew them that quick and he beat their top witness or whatever, that clearly he was guilty. When in fact he was speculating. Correct. This is what was in his mind was this is how I think this crime Correct. occurred. And that's how they... Because I want to be a cop. And that's how they were asking the questions. They weren't asking, you know, what what do you think happened? They're not asking what you did. What do you think happened? How do you see this going down? And he is very willingly providing this information to them. And it's interesting because in the podcast they have, you could tell that they've done this because this case spans 20 years, that Dateline repeatedly covered this case from the initial belief of him being guilty and they need to find a way to get him to be convicted to him being exonerated. And in the early episodes, they were interviewing the detectives, and the detectives would say, well, 
or the interviewer would ask, if he was innocent, what would he respond to that line of questioning? And the detective said, well, he would just say, I have no idea, detective. I have no idea what's going on. He wouldn't be trying to help and provide information. He would just say, I have no idea. So I thought that was kind of interesting that that was what they were hanging their hat on as far as him being guilty. So um, months and months are passing by. The poor uh, Michelle O'Keefe's family, uh, she has a little brother and a mom and dad, and they're not getting anything from law enforcement. They're not very willing to provide any updates on the case. They're just, there's nothing happening, and obviously they don't like that. So they kind of take matters into their own hands. They start putting up billboards all over the county, everywhere, with Michelle, beautiful Michelle, um, saying, I died at 18, I died too young, can you help me find my killer? In an effort to kind of spread word on the case. You'll be able to go to our Facebook page uh, and see a picture of the billboard. Yeah, you'll have to remind me to put that in there. (laughs) So... Um, they do the billboards. They also are a guest on the Montel Williams show. Mont- Montel. If, if there is a name that says 2000s to me, it's Montel Williams. It reminds me of being homesick watching daytime TV. So another name that pops up is Sylvia Brown. She's a psychic detective from that era, and she was on the show the same day as the O'Keefe family. And so she did... Which was not a coincidence. Yes, true. So she did a reading with them, and she um, said that the killer of their daughter was a tall, big man with the initials Lee or L, something along those names. Well, Raymond's middle name is Lee. So that just cemented well, in the mind. Yes. And through this case, there's a lot of like, I don't know the correct terminology. There's a lot of mysticism in this case. Another example is um, Michelle, when she was younger, she would tell people she didn't think she was going to live for very long or she thought her life would be short. There's just very weird instances of stuff like that popping up in this case, and that's another one. And the license tag on the blue Mustang. Her uh, graduation gift Mustang, they got the license plate in the mail, and part of the license plate was 187 or 178. One of the two, which apparently, she told her dad she didn't want to put it on the car, which apparently is police code for murder. So that's another just weird thing about this case. So they put up billboards, they go on the Montel Williams show, and then they also decide that they're going to hire a civil attorney, and they're going to sue the city and the park and ride for wrongful death from their daughter, for there not being security cameras at the park and ride, and for the lack of protection the security company offered for her daughter. So they hire this hotshot attorney that's very well known in the area, um, very good at what he does, R. Rex Paris. And as part of this civil procedure, they are granted the opportunity to get depositions from people. And the person that they want to talk to the most would be Raymond Jennings. Raymond Jennings. So they subpoena him for a deposition. He shows up willingly without an attorney, still without an attorney. And um, is subject- Yeah, because he's just a witness. Yeah. And they, because he doesn't have an attorney or somebody there looking after his own rights, the attorney says that he was able to question him for hours and hours and hours on then. 
with the intent to try and push him to a reaction because they are also um, video recording this process. And wouldn't you know, they invited a reporter, a local reporter to attend the deposition too. They wanted a confession. The, yeah, they're trying to push him into confessing or, or misspeaking in some way. Yeah. And in part of this deposition, he made a statement about when he first arrived on the scene, he thought that he saw her fingers twitching or maybe a pulse in her neck, which is something they latched on to really quick. Because if you're on the scene that fast, how did you not see the shooter? And that's just a little bit too much going on for you not to have some hand in it. Um, after the deposition, the press makes the headlines for the next day. Obviously, the press that was there was something along the lines of lies, lies, lies regarding to Raymond Jennings' testimony. So as far in that community, he, it's already being put out there that he's the one that's done this. That's what the media is doing. That's what the family's doing. Everyone is doing this, the detectives even. So that little deposition, I say little because there's hours and hours of testimony for that, um, ends up coming up frequently for Raymond. The civil suit ultimately ended up being settled um, and as a result of the settlement, the civil attorney says, hey, let's turn this deposition over to the DA's office so they can file criminal charges because they feel like they've pushed him into a spot where there's enough there that they think they, the DA will bring charges against him. So they do so, but ultimately the DA declines prosecution because there's no evidence. It's just whatever Raymond has said about what he thinks could have happened. So that's kind of where that sits for a while. We're talking years. Uh, the billboards are still up, and ultimately one day a retired police detective drives by, and he sees the billboards. He's familiar with the case. He's retired now. So he said, you know, I think I'm going to take a look at that. And he did it with the premise, I bet they just zeroed in on Raymond, and they had their blinders on, and that's where the case got gunked up. So he went in, went in to review this case with the sole purpose of proving that Raymond was innocent. And lucky for him, he had hours and hours and hours of Raymond talking on these deposition videos. So he starts to review all the material, review all of the audio and video, and ultimately he says, holy, holy crud, he's guilty. It's definitely Raymond. So despite going in, trying to prove his innocence, he ended up comes out the other end saying it has to be him. There's just too many coincidences. He knows too much. It has to be him. During the time that he is investigating this, the family, Michelle's family becomes aware of it and the dad approaches him. And once he finds out that he's on the same page, that Raymond is the one, is the murderer, they get together and they decide the problem's not with the evidence. That's not why the DA didn't pursue prosecution. It's how it was presented to the DA. So they come up with this plan that they're going to make a PowerPoint. And in this PowerPoint, they're going to pull all the clips, the most compelling clips from those hours and hours of deposition, pull those clips, put it into a PowerPoint and present that to the DA. So that way, hopefully, it'll spur them into charging Raymond, which they do, and the DA agrees. He issues an arrest warrant for Raymond. They, they did it, and they got it. They did it all from a PowerPoint. <laughs> PowerPoint. Yep. And this is, uh, this is something I stumbled on uh, in my research. When the deputy... The, the, as I understand it, 
the case was handled by a deputy DA, as they usually are, and uh, this deputy DA um, was convinced, I guess, by the PowerPoint. Anyway, after the PowerPoint, he finally filed charges. Yes. And the media, news media, asked him, why now? What has happened? We should say it's year, eight years later, I think. It's years and years after the What has crime. happened? I mean, they, the media really wanted to know what was in the deposition, I think. Yeah. So they asked him, what, what was there? What, what is it that makes it different now? And you can file charges. What? This is, this is his response, Beth. I had to write it down. This is what he told the media. I can't put my finger on what precisely the difference is, but it was clear we have a fileable case. A fileable case, I didn't even know that was a word, but he didn't say we have a strong case. We did, he didn't say we have a winnable case. In fact, he admits it's very problematic, being that there's no evidence. He says we have a fileable case. After all that work, he gets a fileable case. And that implies to me that he just buckled from the pressure that has been placed upon him to file charges. Well, we'll talk about the pressure here in a second. Outside pressure. Forces, the family. I mean, yes. we have to remember how high profile this case was. I mean, everybody in the community, you know, it had gone to national television and, um, yeah, every, I think everybody would have been following it. I mean, they were driving by the billboards well, every day. It would, Definitely. I mean, they erected a six-foot cross at the site of her murder at the park and ride. That's right. It was a very well-known thing in that community. Yeah. And not only was it well-known, a lot of the community thought that Raymond was the person that did it. Well, the media... Portrayed it implied, that way. Yeah, thank yeah. you. Portrayed that he was guilty. So, the DA issues an arrest warrant for Raymond. Problem is, he's nowhere to be found. What? That's because he's serving a tour in Iraq. Yeah. He's on deployment. Um, he's a member of the Army Reserve, and they got called up. Was it Army Reserve or National Guard? I don't, I don't know. I thought it was Army Reserve. One of the two. Anyways, yeah. he's serving his country in Iraq. But luckily for them, he only has a few weeks left on his deployment. So they decide that when he returns home, they will arrest him. Um, the detectives talks about how they put surveillance on him. And it was kind of difficult to arrest him at first, or they didn't do it as quick as they wanted to because he was always around his kids. I should mention he's a husband. Um, he married and he has five children. So once he got home, he was constantly with his children and they didn't want to arrest him in front of his children. So it took, I don't know how long, maybe a day or so before they were ultimately able to arrest him. Um, and he immediately says, I've been out on deployment. Is this have something to do with Michelle? Which I think initially in the original podcast made it seem like maybe he was guilty. But to me, it says the exact opposite. If there's only one thing he could be arrested for, 
You know what I mean? And it's just Michelle and he knows he didn't do anything of it. It's not like he's named off what could it be this, 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 or this, or this. He's like, no, there's only one thing that it's ever caught me up. Anyways, I digress. So they arrest him and he's charged with murder. Next follows a series of trials. Um, he's tried in LA County, which again, according to the Dateline episodes, has a history of having jurors favor the defense for whatever reason. So his first trial is in LA County. It's in the spring of 2008. This is not in the area where the crime Correct. occurred. Correct. In fact, this the, is downtown LA. Michelle's family has to drive the same route to the courthouse that Michelle would have taken that day to go to the Kid Rock music video. So it's a very painful process for this. And this original trial lasted six weeks. So for six weeks, the mom, the dad, and her little brother are making this trip, the same trip, the last trip Michelle ever made. So imagine the trauma that's being inflicted on this family. So the first trial lasts six weeks. Um, it ultimately is deadlocked nine to three for guilt. So nine people thought he was guilty. Three people thought he was innocent. Uh, and from what I heard or what I read, they had the second trial. They retried him after that months later, like within the same year. Is that? It was in the same year. Is that normal? Well, they wouldn't do it right away. Well, I, I mean, think that sounds right away. Tell the jurors, come back Monday and we'll do this again. No. But the entire time, Raymond's in custody. Sure. So we're at 2008. He was originally arrested in 2005. Keep in mind, he has five children. He just got back from the And the prosecution probably wasn't anxious to try it again. I think, yeah, his initial bail was a million-dollar bail. Obviously, something far out of his reach. So the second trial happens months later, and the jury hangs 11 to 1. This time, the one person who believed he was innocent said that she had a dream that it was gang-related and that he was innocent. Now, this is another one of those just weird coincidences, so remember that. She thought it was gang-related and that he was innocent. Um, they went to the judge in order to determine whether the charges were going to be dismissed or whether the DA's office was going to be allowed to file a third time for a third jury. And think about the cost, like the expense that's costing not only mental toll to the family and everyone that's present, but also the physical cost that it's costing the county for all these witnesses and testimonies. So um, it's, it's getting pretty expensive at this point, especially when they can't get a guilty verdict. I will interject since we were talking about it just a moment ago. The first trial was in April of 2008 and of course resulted in a hung jury. Second trial was in February of 2009. So that was, what, 10 months later, almost a year. Yeah. 10 months later also. Uh, resulting in a hung jury. Third trial was in December of 2009. Again, about that, 10 months. That's not that long after either. Yeah. So the judge ultimately did tell them, you can have one more shot at it. After that, we're done with it. So whatever this third trial is, that's it. The third trial, it's moved. Yes. It's moved, Beth. Out of L.A. County. Out of L.A. County that favors defense, so the 
reputation the is, big yeah the big favors defense and they they talked a lot about how that la county that's where all the infamous trials happen like oj simpson and that those that level of trial occurred on the ninth floor which apparently is the most senior of judges that's where this this case was heard twice so yes yeah. but now they move it back to where it happened it's palmdale yep where everybody's already made up their mind. And because it's in Palmdale, the third trial, they have a field trip to the park and ride where they're able to point out where Raymond says he was and where the car was. And believe it or not, bowling, bullet fragments and like cracks of the sidewalk were still present from when the crime occurred. And this is years later. So they, they attribute that being so powerful which is what pushed the third jury to convict and they convicted on second degree murder for raymond and he was ordered to 40 to life so after i want to add that this third trial the jury deliberated not the length of trial the length of jury deliberation three weeks mm -hmm. three weeks and Given it was over the holiday, um, over Christmas, I believe. Yeah, I think when, they came, the jury came back a week before Christmas because the family thought it was like God's Christmas okay. gift to them. Yeah. yeah. Three weeks of deliberation. I think that's crazy yeah. for it to go that long because you know somebody was holding the out for three divided. weeks. Yeah, absolutely. There's, it's divided somehow, and they kept them in deliberation three weeks. And finally, they get a verdict. Yeah. And yeah. another thing, after the verdict was read, the juror comes, the jury comes to the family and said that they are so moved by this that they want to hold a candlelight vigil for Michelle at the park and ride. And so after the trial, everybody goes to the park and ride, and they they hold this vigil in Michelle's honor for. That's odd if it's the jury that yeah, does that's, that. Yeah, that was a little strange. At least that's what was reported. So he's convicted. He's sent off. He's sitting in prison. Um, his appeals get denied. So he, he, he's out of options. He reaches out to the Innocence Project. And I just thought of something else, why they got their verdict after three weeks. It was Christmas. The jury was back there saying, we want to be home yeah. for the holiday. I mean, of course, they get Christmas off, but... You don't want to come back to a murder. There must have been tremendous pressure put on the holdouts, considering it went three weeks with Christmas approaching. That's, oh, suddenly we have a verdict. Not that this in any way compares to a jury in a murder case, but if you have ever been present on any kind of board or committee or anything like that where you have to meet with a large group of people and decide on one or two issues, you can appreciate the pain that's involved. <laughs> there was in high school, or excuse me, in college, I was a part of a board that had to elect the new members for this board or the new representation for the board. And I swear to you, we sat there for hours just arguing over people that we had no, you know what I mean? Very, so I can appreciate the pressure and how mentally tolling that must have been for the jurors. 
So, convicted, goes to prison, loses his appeals, gets hooked up with the Innocence Project, and they agree to take his case. At the same time, um, this young man named Clinton is watching the Dateline special about the girl in the blue Mustang. And he thinks, you know what? This guy is either like a crazy killer psychopath or he's innocent. And this Clinton is just unique enough of a person where he's in the position to do something about it. He lives in California is an, and is apprenticing to be an attorney. So in the state of California, there's other ways to become a lawyer other than going to law school and passing the law bar. You can also apprentice under an attorney. Used to be that way in Kansas. Did it? Decades and decades ago. I know when I got out of law school, I returned to Reno County and was practicing law. And there was a, we had one very elderly attorney that had obtained a law license by just studying the law under the tutelage of another lawyer and that he was able to earn a law degree. But that was a long time ago and now in Kansas you can't get a law degree anyway other than accredited law school. See, if that were available in 2008, I could have wasted at least another five years on the whole prospect of being a lawyer. Yeah, the thought of you following me around for five years in the workplace. Okay, we better get back on that. So he goes to his father, who is an attorney. He says, hey, I just watched this dateline. It's crazy. He's Iraq war veteran. Um, there is zero evidence tying him to this crime. Can we take this case on and try and prove he's innocent? And... The podcast, the Dateline special, does a lot to accentuate how um, unique Clinton is. He is obviously incredibly intelligent. Um, I can't even remember the list of accomplishments, but like, would just randomly go to Russia and study foreign diplomacy. I mean, just crazy, crazy accomplishments um, with not really necessarily a drive to succeed, but more just to learn. He just wanted to know things, which I think is very cool. So uh, the father agrees, and they approach Raymond. Well, Raymond's already hooked up with the Innocence Project, uh, which we know does amazing, wonderful things. But they're able to talk to him, and ultimately Raymond decides to drop the Innocence Project as his representation and sticks strictly with Clinton and Jeffrey. This, when, uh, Who, by the way, has zero experience in criminal law, as far as I know, and zero exonerations under their belt. The way uh, Clinton and Jeffrey attacked this case kind of brought to mind when you see these shows, legal uh, shows on TV, that this is the, it's like this is the only case they have. Yes, you know, 100%. You never see them addressing, spending time on any other cases other than the topic of the show. And I think that's not very realistic. But in this case, that's the way these two guys took this case off. Well, and given the personality that's depicted for Clinton, the son, it seems like he would very easily fixate on something like this and just nail it to the ground. It also very much reminds me of Jim McCloskey 
because what they did was on the boots detective work. They didn't, obviously they went through all the other like uh, depositions and all that stuff, but they went back and reinvestigated the crime scene. Other people that were there just started over from the beginning. Interviewing the witnesses. It's yeah, boots on the ground. And in part of that process, the cops initially, um, there was another car with two people present at the time of the murder and they had interviewed those people in the car and they had testified about they heard X amount of gunshots and they were a little apprehensive to testify or be interviewed because they were underage in the parking ride smoking marijuana. So they were a little sketchy about talking to the police to begin with. But their names were in all the court documents. And excuse me, not court documents. They were in the um, detectives' logs. So Clinton and Jeffrey get these names and they start doing research. Well, wouldn't you know, it's a 17-year-old female and her 18-year-old boyfriend that are in the car. And the 18-year-old boyfriend has a long history of break-ins and carjackings and is a very known gang member. And it just so happened that a few weeks after Michelle's death, he um, carjacked somebody by gunpoint Uh, the same millimeter of gun that was used to kill Michelle. Um, And it's actually the same vehicle. He carjacked a blue Mustang and was ultimately arrested and sentenced to 31 years for that. Yeah, being a gang member in L.A. is a big deal. And that was something that really wasn't discussed at the original trial was that there was heavy gang violence specifically in this area when that happened. Um, And they didn't talk about it in the trial. They didn't bring it up. So they discovered that. Um, They relied, Clinton and Jeffrey created a motion and presented it. Actually, I believe there was a um, conviction conviction integrity unit that opened up. And they determined, Clinton and Jeffrey, that that is the easiest way for them to get this this case heard. So the county... uh, the county had said that they were going to start this conviction integrity unit and where it's opening its doors to cases. So Clinton and Jeffrey wrote this very long brief outlining everything that they had discovered in their investigation, being that Jennings uniform the night of the murder was tested and it tested negative for gunshot residue or blood that Jennings owned a 38 caliber handgun and was unarmed when Michelle was killed. And she was killed with a different millimeter, a nine millimeter weapon that I didn't mention this, that DNA was found under Michelle's fingernails because it was very clear it was uh, an attack and she fought back. And the DNA under her fingernail was a male, but was not Raymond. And that law enforcement failed to investigate all the other people present at the scene of the crime. Yeah, it was unidentified DNA. They could not identify whose DNA, but they could um, ruled Raymond out. Yeah, rule and I think they out. were able to rule that it was male DNA too. So, and and then the they didn't inform the jury that there were gang mis- gang members present at the scene the night that Michelle died. So they presented that to the conviction integrity unit. They the conviction integrity unit. This was actually the first case that they took on was Raymond's. They reviewed it and they ultimately decided to release him based on the um, research that Clinton and Jeffrey did. So in June 2016, he was released, but he was required to wear an ankle bracelet. Um, It's kind of sad. The O'Keefe's family, Michelle's mom and dad, 
they had been in contact with the detectives. And at one point they'd even asked the detectives, you know, how sure are you that Raymond is the person that did that? Murdered our daughter. And the detectives told them we are a hundred percent sure it's Raymond. So they have this belief in their head that it, there's no pot, there's all roads lead to Raymond. There is no, no way it's anybody but Raymond. So this um, exoneration just destroyed their family and brought up even more trauma for what was happening. And they interviewed her dad afterwards, and he said something along the lines of he's, he'll, he's always going to be guilty and something along those lines, obviously. So we talked about how a few weeks after Michelle's murder, though, and I say 17-year-old female and 18-year-old male because their names have been redacted from most things that I've seen, so I don't have names to pinpoint you, but the two people that are believed to be the ones that commissioned the crime, uh, the 18-year-old male who stole a blue Mustangs identical to Michelle's just a few weeks later, the Mustang he ended up stealing was an automatic, where Michelle's was a manual transmission. So the belief is that it was a carjacking gone wrong. When he discovered it was a manual transmission and he couldn't drive it, he left it there. Also, there was bullets, bullets in the car, which would have made the value of the Mustang decrease, too, for wherever he would have taken it to. So, and I think, and you may correct me on this, Beth, but... This subsequent carjacking of a different Mustang, similar uh, Mustang, um, did the perpetrator not kill the I, person re tied to that Mustang? I don't know. He was sentenced to 31 years for it, for that crime. I, I, don't, I guess okay. I don't know. I can't say definitively whether he did or not. I know it, a weapon was used in yeah. the commission of the crime. Yeah, he used the same yes. type of weapon as... And later, it turns out, ballistic evidence shows that the bullets that left this 9mm were the exact same markings um, as the neighborhood gang. It matched a gang shooting from the same gang that this man belonged to later, too. Just tying that back together. One, I can't believe I almost forgot this. So when this young man was arrested for the second carjacking that he occurred on the Blue Mustang, um, an earring was in his ear, a diamond stud. And it just so happens it was identical to ones that Michelle owned and were missing from her body when she was sent to the morgue. So he had an identical earring that was missing from Michelle in his ear when he was arrested just a few weeks later, too. So I think that's evidence, something we haven't seen yet. A lot more evidence than they had on 100%. Raymond Jennings. And they, the detectives were aware of these two individuals the day of the murder. They just failed to investigate them because Raymond was saying what they needed him to say, and so they pursued Raymond. Um... He eventually was found factually innocent of the crime, which apparently is unusual and a far higher standard than simply presumed innocence. Do you know anything about that? Well, I have some concerns about how the case ended. Well, let me get to this, and then you can do your uh, Jerry's final word, <laughs> speaking of talk show hosts. Um, so another casualty with this, obviously, is Michelle's family. 
her parents ended up separating shortly after the murder, not because they didn't love each other. They just said it was too painful to be with each other. It was a reminder of their daughter. Jason, her little brother, her beloved little brother, um, he had a promising history, a promising future as a professional baseball player. And due to a freak accident that kind of ruined his pro dreams, and then he was started on the course if he wanted to be a district attorney, like the district attorney that helped his family. But unfortunately, the medication that was used in his accident to help him recover resulted in the his death. The medication, the medication he was prescribed, led to his death. Um, so not only did Michelle's parents lose their oldest daughter, they also lost their youngest son too. So this family has just been put through a lot, a lot, a lot. So there's that. Um, there's real quick. And then dad, you can get to what you were going to say. I have two more thoughts. The first one being, um, Raymond's problem with this was that he just kept talking. He just kept providing information. He kept coming into interviews. He did not hire an attorney. And after his exoneration, he was asked, you know, in hindsight, would you have talked to the police? Would you have done things differently? And he told the interviewer, you know, there's such a stigma around mall cops, rent-a-cops. I just didn't want to be portrayed as someone who was unintelligent or didn't know what they were doing or who allowed this to happen. His reason for trying to be so helpful and providing everything he could, providing all the knowledge he had in his head to them was so he would be respected and hopefully help them find who killed Michelle. So I think that's kind of interesting. It wasn't just his ego. It's that he wanted to do what was right. The last thing I would like to say, um, at the end of the trial, when the verdict was read, um, Raymond had a few statements that I think are pertinent that I'd like to share. The first one is, as Christ is my Lord and Savior, I will stand before God, and this is the one sin that I will not be judged for. I'm at peace in my life, and I laugh and I smile because I hold no remorse because I did not kill your sister. Jesus is my Lord and Savior, and I will stand before him, and I'll stand before him with you, with you, and with you, and we'll we'll get answers to this question. When the real killer is found, I forgive you for the insults that you said about my children and my parents. I forgive you for the hateful words that you have said. Yeah, that powerful statements from Jennings, they were made at the time of sentencing, and they were made right after the family, the family addressed the court, and then and they, the family did say hateful things directly to him. They didn't. I think it was the brother, the younger yeah. brother, uh, didn't speak to the judge. He spoke to Jennings and said some pretty hateful things. Of course. Yeah, I uh, would have. I would have done the same. I'm sure he killed their. They were her, told his he sister. killed. Yeah, hundred percent. He did it. Um, so, and then the judge turns to Raymond, of course, and says, "Do you have anything you want to say before sentencing?" And those were his his statements that uh, I one. will be judged on judgment day, but not for this sin. Yeah. Yeah. Powerful stuff. 
And again, just showing the compassion. We run into this so much with exonerees. I don't think, I am a compassionate person. I am empathic, but I don't feel like I could have the level of which they do and the the love that they have in their hearts. And they just lost decades of their life. They've lost, I don't know. They are, the ones that we have talked about are just, there's something special for yeah, sure. We've profiled some incredible individuals. Eddie Lowry. I mean, yeah. the, Raymond, away from his kids, five kids for 11 years, and he still has compassion. To, I, <sighs> okay, I want to talk about what I thought was interesting that was presented at trial. At all three trials, um, there was an expert profiler um, that testified. And this is another uh, indication of how high profile this is. I mean, come on, they're in LA. There's <laughs> but uh, this guy was a real deal. He was a retired FBI. He'd been with the FBI for 23 years. And while in the FBI, he led the uh, criminal behavior unit and became a profile profiler. Um, and he was internationally recognized. Isn't he the one that the Netflix series is about? Well, yeah. I can't go with the name. Well, and then I was getting to, he had his own series, true crime series, called Killer Instinct. Had 13 episodes of that um, on a network that I wasn't familiar with. But it seems like in our culture, our society likes, likes these profilers. I mean, how popular is CSI? Yeah. and uh, criminal minds. Uh, it's the gateway to true crime. We seem to like these profilers because they have this, I don't know, superpower that they can use. Anyway, when they think... had, I mean, this guy was the real deal. The top. He, I would say he would be the top profiler. Um, but I've always been a little uneasy with that profiling thing. I don't know um, how reliable it is. If I was on the jury, I guess, I can say it that way. If I was on the jury, I wouldn't give it very much credibility. Um, but what I'm getting to is that this individual, his name is Mark Safarik. S-A-F-A-R-I-K. You can do research on this guy because, man, there's a lot out there. But he did an episode on his series about the O'Keefe murder. And he had all these uh, police uh, videos of their interrogation of Raymond Jennings. And he showed bits of those videos in his episode, Killer Instinct show, uh, on his O'Keefe episode. 
And I noticed at one point in my research, it said that he was showing Jennings interrogation and he wipes his hand across his brow. Jennings does. During the interrogation, he wipes his hand across his brow. And at that time, Seferic states, poker players and profilers <clears throat> call that a tell. Jennings' body language here says, I'm guilty. Please, people. I'm not, I don't buy into the body language. I know there's people that have written books and stuff on how to identify a liar, how you can tell whether someone's telling the truth. I throw the BS flag on you. Well, I think, it, I think the whole premise is that... it's connected with body language, and that does not make any sense to me. Well, I think the preference is that we're all typical, and I think the more that's done with research with the mind, it's that there more of us are atypical than people that are typical. And along with what you were saying about the popularity of all those shows, what I feel as a true crime consumer... What makes those shows so appealing is that we need a reason why. It's comforting for us if there's somebody out there that said, oh yeah, there's science, that's this, this, and this. That, for my brain, logically, that makes it make sense and it makes it less scary. So, for whatever that's worth. I also came across the word victimology, which I had never heard before. And the state presented Safarik as an expert in victimology and stated to the court that it's the study of the victim to determine who might have killed her. That's what was said in court about this. Victimology, I found out, is a term used in the mental health field. It is the study of victims and the psychological effects on them of the trauma that occurred to them. It's, a, it's used to develop a path of treatment for the victim. It's got nothing to do with identifying the perpetrator. The perpetrator. Yeah. It's to help. Anyway, he's using terms that are out of outside the field he's testifying about and uh yeah that i was i was throwing the flag on a lot of what he uh testified to oh and he ruled out he told the jury he ruled out that it was a gang related killing because there was only one perpetrator that's what this expert testifies to. And as we know from Beth's account of the case, he was wrong. Yeah. The top profiler was wrong. You it's it in my mind it borders on junk science. Yeah. It really does. There's too much 
speculation. Courts even limit what profilers can testify to. They can testify to the criminal, I mean, to the crime scene. Yeah. And what conclusions the crime scene provides, uh, but not to identifying the perpetrator. So, yeah, that, that was one of the uh, things that really grabbed, uh, grabbed me. Okay, the other thing. This case at the end of uh, Jennings' nightmare, uh, this case was presented to the uh, Conviction Integrity Unit of the DA's office. And they filed, the attorneys for Jennings file a motion with the court saying, look at all this stuff. Yeah. Look at all this stuff. And it's enough to, they say in their motion, of course, uh, set aside his conviction. The DA files a motion in response to the defense motion. And in their motion, it states, the DA stipulates to the facts uncovered in the ongoing investigation and that it meets the burden of proof necessary for this court to find that Jennings is factually innocent. Stipulates as it agrees, correct? Yes. They agree to everything the defense put forward. They mention the burden of proof necessary. I don't know what the burden of proof is to prove innocence after conviction. Yeah. I have learned in Kansas, it's almost, you have to show absolute certainty. You have to, like a DNA. Yeah. You have to have DNA to prove it was not the one that was convicted. This case doesn't come anywhere near that. Anywhere near that. In my view, this, first of all, I'm not sure there was even newly discovered evidence. Newly discovered evidence is defined that evidence that was known or could have been known at the time or before trial. Well, yeah, they had this information before trial. The other car, the gang people that were in the car. They didn't follow it up, but they could have discovered this evidence. I question whether there was any newly discovered evidence. And if there was, if we accept that, that these other people were there, and now it looks like they might have done it rather than Jennings, you mean there's that actual would be evidence? enough for a new trial. You mean there's actual evidence that somebody else committed the crime? They should have. I think the judge was really ballsy. I think he should have granted Jennings a new trial. And then they submit all this to a jury. But he's, he finds Jennings factually innocent. 
thankfully. I think that's a big step. I think that's, yeah. Anyway. We're going to label that as a win. Yeah. Wrongful. And I should say one last thing. Well, you yeah, were talking he's about, been exonerated by the court. You were talking about the DA's office. Trial after trial after trial, all three trials, the DA was pressured by other, by the district attorney. The deputy DA was pressured by the district attorney. You need to stop this case. This case is not a winner. You're not going to win this case. Drop this case. Drop this case. And he kept pressing. Even the district attorney at the time knew it was, air quote, a problematic case. And I say problematic case is because that's what the deputy DA testified. He recognized it was problematic in the sense that there was no evidence. (laughs) That is problematic. That's a problem. I tell you what. Yeah, I don't know. I just questioned some of those things. But it turned out the way it should have. Yes, 100%. Absolutely. Um, It turned out the way it should have. So... Yeah, as in all of almost all of our cases, we have a happy ending. Yes, well, as happy as this case is going to get, yeah, because it's actually pretty sad. But yes, do you have any final thoughts? I don't, Stephen so. Royce. Any closing statements? No. Well, I just want to say I'm so honored and privileged to get to share these stories with you. I I can't tell you how much I've been looking forward to sitting down with Dad and Chris this week and how much it means to me that I get to do this. Um, If you have any questions, comments, concerns, cases you want us to look at, you can find us on Cleared Pod on Instagram or Cleared Podcast on Facebook. And I so appreciate um, our listeners. Uh, we get comments from them, and that's wonderful. Yes, it is. Um, and a big shout out of thanks to our producer. Wonderful, talented, amazing producer. Makes what we've done right here sound really professional. When it... If you can work with us, <laughs> I tell you what, man. All right. Thank you so much, and uh, until next time. Yeah, stay safe. Assault City Sound Production.